0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 353 of the podcast for December 2nd, 2019. My guest today is someone whose work I've appreciated for a long time. He is Quint Studer. I was first introduced to his book, Hardwiring Excellence, back in 2005 and have been following his work and reading his books ever since. Today, we'll talk about hardwiring and other concepts from his first book. We'll also explore ideas from his latest book, which is titled The Busy Leader's Handbook, How to Lead People in Places That Thrive. It's a book that's intended for leaders in all industries. So if you'd like to find a link uh, to Quint's books and more about him, including a full um, transcript of today's episode you can find all of that by going to leanblog.org/353. Well again we are joined today on the podcast by Quint Studer. Quint, how are you today?
1: Great, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Well, I'm really excited that we have the chance to talk um, and before we talk about your new book, um, The Busy Leader's Handbook, you know when when I first had the opportunity, the privilege to start working in healthcare back in 2005 everywhere i went uh, a lot of people were recommending your book hardwiring excellence and i and i really really liked that book a lot it was really helpful and inspiring and you know i saw that you know there were a lot of connections i think philosophically to lean management and and so i was happy to have that first exposure to you but i was wondering if you could tell the listeners who, who maybe don't know your background you know a little bit about your career and experiences that led to the writing of hardwiring excellence,
1: sure. And um, you know, ask me a question that should take ten minutes, and I can take ten hours. But <laughs> I'll do the best I best I can. Um, I started out as a special education teacher, and people ask me about that, and I, I think that was the best gift I've had. And I didn't know I was going to be doing what I did. And as a special education teacher, and I think this fits lean. It fits everything. The first thing you do is you diagnose the child. <clears throat> and I've seen one of the mistakes that businesses make is they read a book or they hear somebody speak, even, you know, it could be me, and then they rush off to start putting tactics in place because they make sense, but they have not diagnosed. So you diagnose a child. Second thing you do is you set a high goal for the child because you want to create as much independence as possible. You get everybody on the same page. So you get, what I mean by that is, you get the teachers, the parents, the um, maybe the occupational therapist. Everyone on the same page because you want consistency working with that child. You do a ton of reward and recognition. You look at processes that the student can learn. You know, Mark, being your expert in lean, probably one of the early lean people in education was a guy named Mark Gold at Southern Illinois University that created a step-by-step process on how to take apart and put together a Schwinn bike break of 10 parts and show that people that were considered severely disabled could do it. And he did it by building sequencing step by step And then you also have some consequences. So when I got into healthcare, um, after 10 years of special education, I sort of put that into play. And I put that same philosophy, you diagnose, then you try to set goals, you get everybody on the same page, and you look at your processes, and um, so I got into healthcare and sort of kept going through the the road. You know, the sort of got promoted with little or no training. And then one day I ended up in the inner city of Chicago with a hospital with very little money, and um, I was like, given an assignment to move patient satisfaction. And you know, again, you diagnose. So I got on. I drove because I was in Chicago to South Bend, Indiana. Spent the day at Press gaining really learning their tool, how it worked, came back, then I benchmarked. I went to Southwest Airlines because they had a great reputation for service. Mm -hmm. And I saw what they did, and they told me I needed to train managers and get employees involved and did that. And we got a lot of luck. I went to Baptist in Pensacola and sort of duplicated it healthcare advisory board, did some research on two hospitals that had great satisfaction. And one was Holy Cross, one was Baptist. And then I started Studer Group. Um, learned a lot along the way and, um, you know, wrote Hardwiring Excellence. Really, it was sort of my love note in a way to middle managers, who I think have the roughest job in all businesses, of ways that they could put some tools in place to be more more successful. And along the way, I created various tools on Consistency and urgency, and um, then when Studor Group was sold um, to Huron, I basically re- resigned from there and have been spending the last four years working with small businesses and communities, and um, and dabbling in healthcare a little bit still too, with mm-hmm. the permission from Huron. So it's um, been a- again, I'm continue to learn.
0: And yeah, yeah, and that's great. And um, you know, there's a couple of things. Maybe we can take a, a kind of unpack a little bit from what you said there. I mean, I, I think for one, the idea that that you bring up about not just rushing to implement tactics. I think that that's a common tendency in organizations in, in healthcare and beyond. And um, that 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 could include um, lean. That could include tactics that come from press gainy. Um, I, I guess ironically, that could include a rush to implement a tactic or tactics from you know what's, I, I think, you know come to be known as a, what you can call it Studer Group Principles or Studer Principles. Um, I mean, what, what, you know, so let's say you're faced with a situation where you see an organization is just rushing to implement something. What, what would you do to try to coach those leaders about stepping back and, and helping them understand the need to first diagnose the situation?
1: Well, normally, Mark, like you and me, when you come into an organization, they're they're trying to do it on their own. So I'd say 50% of the people that came to my talks or my two-day conferences came there with the thought I'm going to listen for 2 days and then I'm going to go home and do this on my own cuz I'm not going to pay him that much money to do stuff that we should, you know, we should be able to do on our own. So and then 99% of the work came from organizations that had failed to do it on their own. Um so here here's what I find where where they miss. Um, you know, they, they don't do a basic diagnosis, which I, I created a tool. Um, what's the urgency? How does it go through the layers? And so, so, for example, one of the questions I would ask people through different layers of the leadership is, um, you know, how if – if this organization stays the same over the next five years, you know, same processes, same tools, same techniques – same productivity measures. The only thing we can't say will stay the same is our revenue. But if we stay the same internally operation or our results be much better, better, worse, or much worse. And usually the senior leadership team, Mark, will say, well, gosh dang, and if we stay the same, we're going to be much worse. Minimally, they say maybe 75% much worse and 25% say worse. Mm-hmm. Yet when you go down the frontline supervisor, about half of them say we can stay the same. Mm. So you have the crack the whip mentality. So the first thing I look at is, does everybody understand enough data to have seen enough diagnosis to at least know they can't stay the same, you know, with lean? So, so I was at Valley Health System in New Jersey, one of my favorite places. And they did the, the survey and the CFO was stunned because everybody so much thought they could stay the same. And, And then he basically showed them, if we stay the same based on Medicare and Medicaid and self-pay, we're going to take a a profitable organization in four years, not be profitable. So a big part of it is this. And I'll say, number one, you look, do they have the right accountability system to hold the game? So, you know, reading your book, Lean Hospitals, if somebody comes in and you put in a better system, but a year from now, that, ex- that manager is not being held accountable for the outcomes of that system because your job wasn't to put in better processes. It was to put in better outcomes. So we'd say, do you have the right accountability system? Do you have the right training? And not just training and that tactic, but if I don't know how to run a meeting, I'm wasting a lot of time. If I don't know how to hire better, I don't have the right hires. If I don't know how to get rid of people, I have people in there that aren't going to implement So do I have the right skill set? And then the third thing, which I think you you and I are talking a lot about, is do I have the right sequence? So Franklin Covey Research says somebody can put in about two changes. If I change two behaviors, I have a pretty good chance of pulling it off. Three, I I reduce it in half. And four, I'm down the tubes. So most of the time when I go into organizations, I would to convince the CEO, which was hard because the ego's there, you might have to say you went too fast. You might, you got to go back and sort of regroup because you've moved so quick. You haven't, as we call it, hardwired or baked into the DNA that this is what they've got to do. So we just did that. I'm on the board of a great organization called TriHealth in Cincinnati. And Mark Clement loves to move quick. I've known Mark forever. Um, But one of the things as a board member I pointed out to him was Yeah, you might want to back up a little bit, and he and he did. He was he was grateful. So those are things I find. I think sequencing is where hospitals and health systems or small businesses get messed up. They try to go too fast.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I see that a lot um, in the context of lean, and and you know I think there's different ways of saying similar things. Um, You know, you talk about sustaining improvements or hardwiring improvements. Part of what I hear you saying is um, hardwiring. It's too late. (laughs) Is it too late to think about hardwiring after we've implemented something? Do we need to think about from the get-go how to prepare for hardwiring? I imagine diagnosing and getting alignment around the need for change is is probably a, a key contributor to being set up to be hardwired. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think one of my favorite articles, and it sort of, I got into Chicago in 1993 um, with Mark Clement, who's now at TriHealth. And, you know, we were involved in this cultural transformation. You know, we're pretty excited about it. You know, James Collins came out with his book, Built to Last. And, you know, we were really cool into this cultural transformation. And then, darn it, if John Cotter, excuse me, doesn't put out a book, or an article in 1995 from the Harvard Business School that says why cultural transformations fail. Here he right in the middle of it, and he tells us it's gonna fail. And he talked about the fact that a 70 to 80 percent of most most changes, whether it be lean or anything else, will fail. And they don't have to fail. So it's a nineteen ninety-five article. I'd encourage anyone to go online and, and look at it. It's called Why Cultural Transformation Fail. And the, the first two points they make is do you have the right burning platform you know change is hard on people why do they need to change why do they want to change and why don't they have any choice in change and the other one is um do you have the right guiding coalition and i think sometimes the guiding coalition and like senior executives think they have the guiding coalition but it's not big enough and that's why you have to sort of bring people into the loop so you have that critical mass so those are one and two burning platform and critical mass
0: yeah so um one of the other, I think, really powerful concepts from hardwiring excellence is the idea of um, the flywheel and and you know the idea of you know trying to build momentum that then becomes um, you know more self sustaining. Um, I'm I'm curious your thoughts, or if you, if you for one can talk about that flywheel concept and and how how do you help break like in a way there, there's almost a negative flywheel in a lot of organizations where leaders say uh well yeah we need to improve but we're too busy to improve so we get stuck in that cycle of we're too busy to improve we get worse it becomes more overwhelming there's you know um how, how do you shift you know kind of a um, negative momentum into a, a positive flywheel momentum
1: no that's right i say that because um uh we just did this, um, EntreCon for small businesses here in Pensacola. And there there are some people from outside Pensacola, but basically more Pensacola. So I called a CEO who didn't send anybody. And I was sort of stunned. And I said, you know, you never sent anybody." he goes, we're just all so busy. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, well, we're too busy to get better. So we know how to manage our busyness. And, um, You know, sort of like you've been around Mark forever, where you know organizations. Well, we just don't have time to send people away for training. So does that mean we're going to keep doing it the way we're doing it, which isn't working? Um, It's sort of insanity at times. When you look at the flywheel, and I'm an imitator. I take things that other people have done and I tweak them. James Collins in Good to Great showed the flywheel, which was passion. Um, Figure out what you're really good at, and then get the economic result that you need so you can keep sustaining it. I put a hub in the flywheel, which was, you know, purpose worthwhile work and making a difference. And I I think the good leaders, no matter what business they're in, figure out how to help their employees see that what they do is a vital part of the job. You know, from a coffee shop to a candy store, to a bookstore, to a big business, how do we connect with the employees on why they, what they do is vital. And the other thing is with the middle of the why is why are we doing what we're doing? Because if we can't explain the why we're going to lose the employees, you know, it's sort of like in the old, you know, with your kids used to say, why, why, why? And it said, well, cause I told you to, Well, you got to get to the point where you, you got to connect it. Cause true leaders create a culture where employees do it because they want to do it, not because they have to do it. However, sometimes you have to create the have because if I have to do it, then I see the outcomes, and it makes oh, gee, it makes a lot of lot of sense. Um, years, years ago, I got a call from Fred Loop, who was the CEO of Cleveland Clinic, and he's passed away now. And he's one of my huge idols in healthcare. And he called me up one day and he said, "I did a quince doer today." He said, "I was in the restroom, and the maintenance guy came to clean it." And he said, and I went up to him and told him how important it is for our bathrooms to be cleaned. Thank you very much. And Fred is so unassuming, said, well, I was really surprised because he knew who I was. And wow, it made a big difference. So I I think sometimes people underestimate their power. So if we look at that, then the key to the flywheel is most people have the passion. I mean, you know, you you go into a place, Mark, you know that OR wants to be better. You know the place wants to cut out waste. You know they want to cut out steps. So they have the passion. And what we do in healthcare, any business, is we've created cultures based on negative feedback. You know, if you when I do my conferences even today, I'll say if your boss calls you or texts you right now and leaves a message, you know, contact me when you can. Your first thought isn't here comes more reward and recognition. You know, we, we have a we have a restaurant in Pensacola called McGuire's, and I used to do training here people would go to eat at McGuire's and the biggest selling t-shirt healthcare people would buy was a t-shirt that said the beatings will continue until morale improves. So I, I think it's how to get them, how do you build on their strengths and that three to one, three compliments to one criticism. But Then the second point is the skill building. You know, do you, have you really invested in your managers to have the skill? You know, Mark, you go into an organization, of course, I've seen unbelievable great results with lean. I've seen organizations take out waste, take out steps, and the employees are really pumped about it. But for that manager, you've also got to help them beyond that. You know, what are some other skills that they need to give them time back? Whether it's handling a tough conversation, whether it's figuring out cost of goods, whether it's figuring out you know how to how to how to discuss compensation um, opportunities for growth. So we really want to give that manager enough training so they have the time to do some of those things. And then when they get the results, you know, people ask me, I'm sure they've asked you, Mark, well, how do you sustain the game by getting the results? When you get the results, people are so excited um, that they, they want to keep going. They don't want to stop. And so I, I think that's sort of how the flywheel was, was meant to work, to be a self-sustaining uh, yeah. DNA in an organization.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think there there are a lot of parallels in what you're saying to what we might hear from Toyota or what, what we might describe as lean leadership, you know, that leaders need to, um, you know, help build capabilities. Um, we, You know, leaders need to help set direction. Um, and, you know, coming back to what you were saying earlier, you know, employees are, are you know, I think, often, you know, they, they want to do good work. But, they, they may have gotten you know comfortable with with the situation and they might be um, you know afraid to take on something new and they might be afraid of criticism and and that's where I think what you're describing is is so powerful the role of leaders to um, you know sort of you know help help get that process rolling to get things unstuck if you will instead of just uh, you know sometimes unfortunately I, I you know, you hear leaders sort of, you know, blame employees for for not being on the bus or whatever analogy they're using, and and the one thing I think is you know really strong in in what you've written and said over time is you know that it, it comes back to servant leadership, and 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 that's another really important part of the you know I think Toyota philosophy and and lean management. So I was wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit more. Um, I, about servant leadership and and, and why, why that's such a necessary um, a, approach to really have an excellent organization.
1: Sure. Before that, I want to talk a little bit about change. Um, some years back, Regina Herzlinger from Harvard asked me to come to a session on um, what are the key leadership skills that they should be t- teaching at the Harvard Business School. And it was interesting because the number one skill that we came out with was change. And yet, when you go to cities or communities or small businesses, or, you know, again, I'm doing a lot of work now with communities, and you ask people how much training they've had in change, they really haven't had a lot. And if you look at change, there's there's different quadrants of change. And I've always thought that the most, the the person that has the greatest advantage in adapting to change in an organization is the new, inexperienced person, because they've never gotten into the habit. Of doing it the other way. Um, Then there's the relatively new, but gee, yeah, I can make this change, but I haven't been doing it for so long that it's baked into me so I can handle the change. The third quadrant is, you know, I've been doing it. uh, I've been going through this checklist um, and it's more comfortable to keep doing it the way I'm doing it. But yeah, if you make this adjustment, you know, it'll be uncomfortable, but I can handle it. And, and Mark, I have found the person that struggles with change the most is the person that's been sitting there the most successful with the current method of the way they're doing it because they're so so used to it that that they they do it. So I think if you look at servant leadership, it's it's uh, trying to understand where people are on the change spectrum. I just had a, a talk, talk with a fellow from Cox Media and because um, I'm going to be up there talking about change and in a couple of weeks in Atlanta. And um, the the question is, you know, you have to even have great empathy for the person that's experienced, that's always been doing it a certain way because they're multitasking. And and when you're a servant leader, you're you're basically trying to understand where that person is in their own life with their own change. I think you've got to try to go where they're at with the whole empathy And then you've got to figure out, what barriers do I need to remove for them to be successful? How do I reduce their anxiety because they're they're afraid of failure? And then do they have the skills that they need to be successful? Um, I was lucky enough to be invited by the Walton Foundation in Arkansas to go um, to, to talk to a Heartland Summit they had. And they had the president of Walmart talk about the change they're going through and To get them ready for change, their change management expert had them take their watch and put it on the other wrist for one week. And people in the audience were fidgeting. You're not going to make us do that, are you? But but I think leaders miss the obvious, and I write about this a lot, you know, that they're a role model, and people are going to watch them. And they have to make sure they understand the basics, you know. and, And these are sounds like the basics, but you don't get yourselves, you know, One of my big wins at Baptist is when I came in, my office needed furniture for sure. And people asked me if I wanted new furniture. And I said, no, just find some stuff in the storage area and I'll use what's ever sitting in the hospital because how can I spend money on me when we need better wheelchairs? We need blood pressure cuffs. You know, I only told that to a few maintenance guys, but that got around pretty quick. Um, Parking, you know, don't cut in line parking you know your job is to create the right culture for people to optimize their 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 human potential and i just think you know i I joke all the time mark when i was young i wanted to be the president of a hospital so i could make my own schedule have this cool (laughs) parking spot you know and dang it if by the time i got there they didn't flip the chart upside down (laughs) try to park farthest away from the hospital yeah you know blah 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 so i think it's just uh, you know, how are you being, how are you creating the right culture to may help other people achieve their potential? And dang it, if that's not a great feeling to see other people being successful. I, I love the fact, Mark, when I, I looked on Lincoln or something, there are so many people that came to my training that I knew that were administrative residents, you know, directors and VPs that are now running healthcare systems. You know, it's like yeah. a coaching ladder. It's, it's pretty cool to see their success.
0: Yeah, and um, you know, speaking of LinkedIn, I, I asked some people on LinkedIn if they had questions that they wanted me to ask you, and, and I want to share one of those because I, I think it's on this theme of servant leadership, and you know, I work for you as a leader. Um, you know, and so Laura asked, um, I would love to hear Quint's take on how leaders can hardwire rounding tools and asking team members about what needs fixed without them as leaders owning everything. Um, sometimes it's easier to just take the fire and put it out, um, but lean, and I'll, I'll add, you know, I think you know, other, other approaches, w- would encourage empowering the team. So what, what are your thoughts about finding that balance of, of being a servant leader without feeling the pressure to do it all or creating dependency, perhaps?
1: Well, no, I think it's perfect. I, I just had a two-day conference. This was our big topic. Um, We get promoted into leadership positions because we bring solutions. I mean, if you look at who gets promoted, it's the employee that somehow comes up with some solutions. So now, the reason we got promoted is as an employee, not as a leader. As an employee, we come up with solutions. Now, as a leader, we somehow think that's our job to give the solution. And the ego, including mine, gets fed. Like, even this, I'm going to give the topic and then I'm gonna feed my ego a little bit here on it. Um, we fall into what I call park ranger leadership, where we keep rescuing people and we keep feeling good because they thank us for rescuing them, but they keep getting lost because we haven't taught them how to quit getting lost. So I think the hardest thing for a leader to say is what do you think? What do you think? What do you recommend? If you were me, what would you be doing? And if the person says, I don't know, instead of then giving the answer, you say, you know what, why don't you think about it for a while, a a week or a couple days, and bring me back what you think we should do. Um, It's almost unbelievable. And here's an example. Cleveland Clinic years ago, managers up on the unit um, says to the people, you know, talking about things and people are complaining about inventory. You know, we ran out of sheets, we're running out of towels, and blah, blah, blah. At one time, that manager would have ran to her office and started looking at it. So the manager said, well, what do you think we should do? And they said, well, you know, our census has been so much higher than we're used to. Maybe we should be relooking at what our standing inventory is. And the manager said, well, why don't you guys come back to me on what you think it should be? We make leadership harder. And it has to be because we're just tend to be solution people. So I was at a conference one time and um, these people, and I wish I I knew their name right now. and I'm sorry, I forgot. But um, they said, what they said was really cool. They said, when you ask people what they think they should do, a great majority of them are afraid to take the risk. They'll say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And if you say, well, if you did know, what would you Mm -hmm. do? She said, 70% of the people will tell you something. Yeah, you've given him you, you put a safety net in i also think as a manager what you have to you have to round often enough to play offense If you're overwhelmed i had a ceo said quinn i can't do this rounding i was up on a nursing unit the other day i was up there for 40 minutes i said well when was the last time you were up there so well, i hadn't really been up there in a long time i said right they don't know if they're ever going to see you again and i call it playing offense you know you, you go onto that unit and first you start off with, tell me what's going well today. And then they look at you say, is IT Does your systems there? Is the staffing there? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's usually better than people think. You only talk to when something's wrong. Who should I recognize today? You hit those two positive things. And then you say, the magic question is, do you have what you need today to do your job? And they're either going to say yes, and then you say great, and they're going to say no. And then you can go into what I call a solution conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's a great question. And, and one other question that, that's always stood out And I've, I've, from your book, and I've passed it along, uh, you know, or talk to leaders about this question when they're going out, whether you call it rounding, uh, rounding with a purpose, gembo walks, uh, whatever you call it. You know, a lot whatever of times, it is. Whatever it is, leaders will, will try to engage with people. And um, em- employees might be, uh, you know, timid for different reasons. And, and the one question I remember you recommending is to, to not just ask the questions around what, what can I help you with, what, what needs to be fixed, but to also add, it's okay, I have the time. And, and yeah. I found that that's a very powerful practice. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about why, why it's helpful for a leader to say something that seems obvious. It's okay, I, I have the time to talk with you about it now.
1: Well, I think people have this issue with, I don't want to bother you. You don't have the time. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people will eventually contact me and say, well, I didn't want to bother you. Or they will finally, I'll see them and they'll say, yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you, but I didn't want to bother you. And I said, that's your issue, not mine. You know, I'm, av- I'm available. And I think what happens is we sort of learned this with, with nurses, um, you'd ask patients why they didn't tell the nurses or ask the nurses and they'd say, well, they're so busy. They're so busy. Then once the nurse started saying, Hey, before I leave the room, is there anything more I can do for you? I have time. It released that conversation. So I think same thing with the leader. You know, you're, you're important. I have time. I'd like to really learn what, what's going on, but I just think we play, we play defense. I was, we have a great, um, hotel chain called High Point. And I spoke to them last week. They're all managers in hotels. And, you know, I, I talk about the fact that as managers, we, we have to play offense a little bit, but you have to be out there on the field, letting people know you're interested. And then the other thing I think, Mark, is you've got to let them know you're going to follow up. And I know this sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when, when somebody writes it down, if I if you tell me something and I just look at you and I shake my head, you're wondering, are they going to follow up? But if I <laughs> right. if I write it down, whether it's on a phone, whether it's on an iPad, whether it's on a piece of paper, and then I come back with you, I'm building trust. Uh, one of my favorite stories is when I first got to Baptist Hospital, I um, parked far away and I'm walking in and it's like seven o'clock or so. And I see a nurse and I just introduce myself and tell her I'm the new administrator of the hospital. And Tell her I work for you. My favorite line used to be, "I work for you." What should I get done today? And they'd look at me like maybe a urine screen would be a good idea, you know. <laughs> and, um, and and this nurse said to me, and she was—I loved her because she She said, "I'm going to leave here in twelve hours. It's going to be dark when I come out to my car. Those bushes have overgrown, and I get scared somebody could uh-huh. be behind those bushes. Yeah. Can you get the bushes trimmed?" So we went in, I called facilities, they not, they trimmed the bushes, they actually fixed the fence a little bit. And she went back out that morning at 7 p.m., that night at 7 p.m. when it was dark and she saw trim bushes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'd say to her, what do you think of the new administrator? She wouldn't say, well, he's really good at vertical integration, he understands population health, um, you know, he's an expert in process improvement. Um, she'd say, I like him. Yeah. And I think our goal is to constantly be looking at removing excuses and barriers from people while giving them the skills to be successful.
0: Yeah. That's, that, that's really, uh, really powerful stuff. And um, let, let's talk about the new book, um, the busy leaders handbook. You know, we've talked about, you know, leaders are busy. You said earlier Um uh, you know right about writing a love letter to middle managers they have the toughest job is is this book also um in, in a way that that love letter or something that's that's meant to be helpful for leaders at all levels
1: yeah um you know for years people used to say to me are you ever going to rewrite hard excellence are you ever going to update hard excellence and a couple times i tried and then i started reading it and i sort of liked the tone and the sequence mm-hmm. so i really have it I started putting this book together and I think it's sort of like, it's not hardwiring excellence, but the goal is the same, to give people um, particularly skill sets and tools and techniques to one, reduce my anxiety. And when middle managers or anybody reads this book, the first thing they're going to do is feel pretty good because they're going to find out that they do a lot of things pretty close to what I recommend or what I recommend. So the first thing I want them to do is not be so defeated because, you know, people go home with what they can't do instead of what they can do. Mm. You know, if I have a hundred employees and 98 of them are doing well, it's those two that aren't doing well that I take home with me every night. So I, I want them to get out of the book. I want to reduce their, their sort of self their I want to reduce their feelings that maybe they're not good because they are because they're in a role that's vital. So I want to re- help them with their self-confidence. So number two, I want to reduce their anxiety that um, how do I handle this situation? I got a tough conversation coming up. You know, how do I handle it? Uh, I want to reduce their anxiety. And number three, I wanted to give them a desk guide that they can go to, because here's what I've learned. Um, I can take people off site every two days, every 90 days for two days. And we can talk about all sorts of stuff. And, they, and everybody likes it. But I'm not going to use it until I need it, you know. If you talk to probably any woman, the great majority of them will say, someday I'm going to have a baby. And they might even had a health class in high school that talked about pregnancy, but they probably really aren't going to get connected to it till they're pregnant and want a little bit more. So I wrote a book that a person can certainly read all at once, but I really wrote a book so you can get and say, Hey, here, here's what's going on right now. You know, how, how do I, how do I, um, you know, how do I create a more safe environment for employees? How do I measure what's important to us? You know, how do I become more self-aware? What do I do when I'm feeling stressed? So I really wanted to write a a resource guide. So, um, I was with John Maxwell about a month ago and he said, they asked him what's his favorite book. And he said, the one he's currently writing right now, Mm -hmm. that wasn't me. My favorite book Years was Hardwiring Excellence. You know, I've had other books, and people say, "Clint, what book should I read now?" I'd say, "Well, read Hardwiring Excellence. It's still my favorite book." I'd say Busy Leader Handbook is now my favorite book because mm. I think it really takes some of the concepts I wrote years ago, but brings them up to today. And I think it has a lot more tools. I've learned a lot. I've learned so much more now what managers face. So I could write a book on what do you need to know now. So I'm very very pleased with the book and I appreciate the way Wiley's um mm-hmm. you know pushing it. it's in all the airport bookstores and it's um I appreciate what they've done um to to really helpfully like, get it in the hands of people.
0: Yeah. And and it's it's a very scannable book. I mean I think you know the table of contents makes it really clear if somebody's got a particular challenge, they can jump right to a chapter and and find something that's useful. And 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 that intended audience is Really busy leaders in in any industry, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, any in industry. I was real sensitive to that. You know, it's interesting too because I think in healthcare, people actually get a lot of out of books that aren't for healthcare. If you look at some of the books they read, remember, gosh, who you know, who moved my? That's how we were going to fix healthcare for about a year. Everybody was going to read the book Who Moved My Trendy <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and then we were going to yeah. get gung ho, and then we were going to become. <laughs> you know, run a nuclear plant and then we were going to run a ship, um, you know, all sorts of things. Um, so this, this book's really, um, meant for any, any leader and it's, you know, basically doesn't, isn't for, for anybody in a leadership role or a manager's role. And I think chapter one, Mark is so vital and and you, you talk a lot about it and, you know, let's, let's face it with what you've been trying to do over your years is like pushing an elephant. Up the hill here, because in order for people to put lean in, their ego has to be deflated enough to think that they've got to change, and they've got to trust somebody else, and you know, in healthcare it's particularly hard because healthcare care feels they're terminally unique. you know well, we're not this, we're not that, we're not this and and I think in chapter one is the key to this whole thing is you you've got to deflate the ego. So, you know, when when Mark Clement at TriHealth said, you know what, we've been moving really quick and, and they, and by the way, he's been getting some unbelievable results there too. But yet, even with unbelievable results being named one of the top systems in the country, he still had courage enough to say, but in a few areas, we probably got to slow down a little bit. Um, that's an ego deflation. And I think that's that self-awareness and we get self-awareness sometimes on our own uh, we get self awareness on measurement. We just did our employee engagement survey. And one of the things we struggle with is our employees not feeling they're getting opportunity for growth. So, well, it might not be growth as you move up in the role, but can we grow you in your own skill set? Well, if we don't have that type of data, we can con ourselves. And, you know, it's sort of cool. I was just talking to Louis Gump, who's an executive at Cox Media, and he said to me how Cox is family oriented. Um, when, when James Cox passed away, he started Cox in his will. He basically told them always take care of your employees. So I thought, well, that was beautiful. He wrote that. How do you know you're taking care of the employees? And Lewis then went through all the way to measure where their employees are at. And I can't tell you how many organizations I think are hypocritical because they say our people are number one. Mm. You know, they're the lifeblood of the organization. And yet, they say it. They don't measure it. And if you don't measure it, how do you know what to do about it?
0: Well, and and getting a survey back that has you know honest responses that aren't what they would hope to hear, that might be a humbling experience. Uh, I, I want you know on, on that topic of, of humility, you you talk about the importance of um, leading with humility that that's a core theme uh, from from Toyota as well. And I you know, I'm, I'm, does it take some sort of um, near traumatic event that, that that humbles a person? Like I'm always curious, you know can can a leader become more humble? Does it take some sort of external trigger?
1: Well, sadly, it reminds me of, you know, um, I'm on the board of Betty Ford and Hazelton, you know, great long-term addiction. And in the old days, they'd say, somebody with addiction has to like bounce off the bottom, you know, lose their job, lose their family, lose their health. Then maybe, maybe they'll think they should do something. And over the years, you try to raise that bottom. And I think same, same with a leader. Sometimes you, you don't have to have that traumatic experience if you're measuring along the way. Um, but sadly, sometimes it, it does take that but I hope, hopefully we don't. So, so for example, again, we have, you know, I have a property company, I have a baseball team and so on. And we measure all the time and um, I'm doing an employee engagement rollout video here at three 30 this afternoon. And I'm going to show areas we need to improve upon. Well, but by getting close and measuring on a consistent basis, you know, just like the 30 and 90 day meeting, why wait till the employee quit? why not say at their 30th day, is there any reason you would think about leaving here? You know, let's not, let's do the exit interview before they exit. And I, I think you can reduce the pain and the ego deflation by measuring and looking at the key indicators. Um, and the best thing to do is deflate your own ego. I tell the story, Mark, in a talk recently that, you know, somebody came up to me one day and I'd been working on this project for years and I was sharing my results and they came up to me and said, you know, I feel so much better. They said, you know, I've been trying to do this for this long and here's where I'm at and hearing where you're at after 10 years, I feel Mm -hmm. like my progress is better than I thought. What they were basically telling me is that I helped them by telling them I was still not where I want to be. I had Mm -hmm. Steve Ronstrom years ago when he was president of a hospital, Claire, Wisconsin called me and said, Quinn, I'm having this problem here. Um, What do you recommend? You travel the country. I said, well, Steve, keep calling people because I got the same issue at Studer Group that you have in your hospital. And when you get the answer, call me back. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all on this journey together. And as soon as people realize that. And the other thing that's really cool right now, and I didn't know I was going to talk about this. I've been really working a lot on mentoring, studying mentoring. There's something now called reverse mentoring. And in my book, I talk a lot about young talent, how to keep young talent because um, everybody just says, well, they lead, they go away, they can't do anything with them, you know, that whining. Young talent wants to be engaged. Yeah, They want to be involved. And I think lean is perfect for your younger employees because you're giving them a chance to come up with solutions. So the other thing is called reverse uh, mentoring, some of the younger people are so, I, I we have a fellow here named Daniel Venn, who's in our baseball team. And my, a, double A team I own, and he's in charge of social media. He is so good that he's teaching everyone now how to maximize social media. So yeah. I think the other thing is we're missing some great opportunities for reverse mentoring here.
0: Yeah. And, and I, I do want to come back to um, any any lessons from the baseball team? Because I, I think that's a really cool thing that you've gotten involved in. But you know, going going back to you know the fundamental question of the new book, and again for the listeners, it's the Busy Leaders Handbook: How to Lead People in Places That Thrive. I mean, kind of back to a core question: What? Why are leaders so busy, or why is it that they feel overwhelmed with being too busy?
1: Well, because I don't think they have the skill set. I, I think over the years people get put into jobs they get promoted 95 to 98 percent of people to get promoted didn't go to graduate education on leadership yeah. they, they basically were really good at their job and they got promoted you know so you know dave wagner who's the president of the zix corporation there out of dallas who's now bought app river told me that you know he went from you know being an employee to leading employees to leading leaders and now as a ceo he's leading executives and it's hard yeah. And I just don't think we spend the money on skill sets. So I got asked mm-hmm. on it by someone: "Is this a time management book?" I said, "In a way, it is, because the best way to give people time is to give them a better skill set. Because there's a waste of time and there's a waste of mind. And if you look at this book, if everybody did this book, it just did the 41 best practices or so, they would gain a ton of time back because their meetings would be run better." They'd understand process improvement, like you said, to take the waste out, um, to make it more efficient. They'd understand when you have to fire someone instead of hanging on to them. They'd realize um, how to manage um, customer service so they're not dealing with so many complaints. I want to give managers a better life. because when, when I was a supervisor, you know, I didn't get any training, Mark, in healthcare, except one time, one time. The hospital heard the union was coming. So we had one day training on how to be better leaders. But um, until I got to Holy Cross Hospital in Chicago at Mark Clement, I had never had a a system say, we're going to invest 64 hours in training on you. And so I I think we just have have not been good at giving people the time to get better. And they're not going to ask for it because they're sometimes embarrassed or don't even know what they don't know. In my book, Hardwine Excellence, one of my favorite statements is, you can tell the values of an organization on how much they put into training and developing their talent. Because how can you tell people you want them to do a good job, but not give them the time to develop their skill set? And I think that's what's sad about when I go to companies. We put people in these horrendously tough jobs that are are so hard, we don't give them the training. I, I used to tell CEOs, if you're depressed, and think you have it rough because you've got ten direct reports or something. Mm-hmm. Take about an hour, go up to med surge right. for ten year. The med manager managing seventy employees, three hundred sixty five days a year, twenty four hours a day, dealing with a, a whole array of different physicians, different patients, and in about an hour, you're going to come back to your CEO office feeling much much better than when you left because you realize right. that you've got a pretty good job. So. How can we not give these people the skill sets to be successful?
0: Yeah, there's, um, and, I, and I, you know, as much as, much as I can generalize, I, I think this is a a big challenge in healthcare the the lack of formal supervisor training, managerial leadership training, and you know, sometimes it's a matter of, of time. Sometimes, you know, unfortunately, it's it's one of the first things that gets cut from the budget in tight times when it seems like that's. That, I that, think it
1: is the that, first that
0: thing. counterproductive <laughs> and be, travel counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. Travel for training or the ability to even buy yeah. a, a have the company buy a book for you or a training class. Yeah.
1: No, it's incredible. I yeah. you know, it's incredible. You know, I learned that, you know, I used to love buying books for my managers because it showed them I cared about them. I wanted to do better. But I'm I'm always amazed at these organizations that will say we're a billion dollar organization, but then they panic over small, spending small small amounts of dollars for that. I think the other thing we fall into the trap too, and I've learned this more and more, we think that there's a department that should be doing training. Oh. Okay, well, we have the, the human resource department, or we have an OD department, or we have a training department. Those are there to be helpful, but the key person that has to develop the people is the person who they report to. And and I'm a huge believer, people used to, if I, I wanted to make a zillion dollars at Studer Group, I could have came in and said, you guys aren't the problem. It's the employees. We're going to do massive training of all the employees. Now, I didn't do it because it wouldn't work. Because what happens is employees hear from an outside person, but then they go back and they look at their manager. Yeah. So I, I think this whole idea of mentorship and learning how to coach, Harvard Business Review just put out an article this week, which was great on most managers don't know how to coach, but they can learn.
0: Yeah.
1: And I I think, I I think I tell people development is part of everybody's job. And your job is to develop the people that work for you. You know, you don't say, even though you have a department, possibly in a big company, they're there to help you learn how to develop. They're not the developers. And I think that's the other mistake that companies make, particularly. So small companies don't train because they don't think they have the resources, Big companies sometimes think that somebody else should be doing it. Mm. When in reality, it's training your managers on, you know, your training and development department should be training managers on how to do development, not that they should be coming to them for development. And most do. Most are sophisticated. Most training development departments and HR departments realize that they've been pushed way too much to take on a role that they can be helpful in, but it really comes up to that top executive to make sure that the people under him are being developed. I used to say to CEO, look over your team. Who are your best performers? And he's "Oh, you know, these three are great. If, and I'd say, well, what if the rest of your team were as good as those three? Oh my gosh, my life would be better. And so then it's your job to get those rest of them to those three. We're all developers.
0: And when you talk about developing an organization, um, there's another question here from LinkedIn um, from from uh, Sabrina, she wanted to hear about your approach. Or you know, how do you develop? How do you create that culture where leaders support employees?
1: Well, first of all, I measure the heck out of employees, so they have no choice. I, I, I know this sounds tough, maybe they have no choice. Um, I will be very patient with managers on everything except not feeling that they're doing a good job with their with their staff members. So one is you measure it. And then once you measure it, you identify issues. So, for example, our issue recently is opportunity for growth. So then you talk to the managers about how do I help grow you? Because if I roll model out with you, another area is communication. And so then you talk about, well, how can you sit down with your employees and say, hey, wow, you don't feel our communication very good. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I truly want it to be good. But obviously, I'm not sure how to do it right now. But I need your help. Could you identify what excellent communication looks like to you? Could you tell me what you need, when you need it, where you need it, how you need it? And can you help me understand a time when I haven't communicated well or I missed something I should have? I'd say you let the employees create a template on what good communication is, then you deliver it. So I think it's truly measurement, and I think we just sometimes don't want to measure. Again, that's where we're penny-wise and pound foolish, is we don't measure. Then when we do measure, we don't do anything about it. I went into a hospital one time, and the CEO of the system said, Oh, I feel bad for so-and-so. He was president of a hospital because his employee results are so bad. He's taking it personally. I told him not to take it personally. I said, I tell him to take it personally. That's his job to make sure he has the right place to work. Right. And, and I, I, so I think going back to what she says, you've got to measure it. When you measure it, you you can tell, I mean, I can go to an organization and they'll say, Oh, turnover is bad with all the lower paid employees because, you know, Walmart's taking them all or blah, 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 blah. And I'll say, then I'll study it and I'll find managers that have the same compensation level and the same corporate that don't have any turnover. And then we'll study them. And I find, Mark, and you probably found this, one of the hardest things to do is get people to deflate their ego and go down the hallway to learn from somebody, you know. They'd rather go across the country to a conference to learn. You know, when I was at Baptist Healthcare, we were looking at our pressure ulcers. We also had a nursing home, and our nursing home did a better job with pressure ulcers than the hospital. So I told, talked to the nurses about let's take a field trip to the nursing home because they're doing a better job managing pressure ulcers than we are, and they have long-term patients that are sedentary. Not everyone was excited to get on the bus. You know, because well, so I, I, I think um, that whole measurement and, and benchmarking people within your own realm, instead of saying why you're different, how, how you're alike. And I'll finish it. We're pa- patient sat years ago. Patient sat years ago started measuring it. Press gaining, and Michelle Wasco, who's now deceased, was a, a manager on one of the units, and her patient sat was better than anybody else. So Don Dean, who was working for me then. Um, we went up, I said, go study her. You know, don't just don't go ask her She said, go study her. Spend the whole week just watching her. And about the third day, Don said to Michelle, you know, Michelle, I notice every morning you go visit every patient. Um, and she said, doesn't everybody do that? Mm. No, nobody else was doing that. But see, managers also have a rough time because they don't get to see what others are doing because they're isolated. So you've got to create those best practice visits in that learning lab because as a nurse or a, if I'm a barista, I'm watching other baristas and I can learn from them. But if I'm a manager, I'm not watching other managers. So you have to create that learning environment for them.
0: Do you have time for a quick question about uh, the baseball team before we wrap up? Please. Please. So, uh, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Uh, well, I would love to talk more, but maybe just the the quick question. I mean, what you, I appreciate how you talk about continuing to learn what What's one key lesson that you've learned from running a business that's so different um, in this case, a minor league baseball team?
1: That it's so much the same. It's just the same as having a hospital or anything else. Number one, you gotta hire. And so we don't sit here and say, Well, they're seasonal employees. We every one of our employees goes through three hiring, three step hiring process, just like you would if you were hiring an executive or anyone else. So it's selection. Number two, it's constant measurement. We we measure employee engagement twice a year, and we measure turnover all the time, and we measure sponsor satisfaction, group satisfaction, and fan. We do three thousand surveys every single game to find out how we're doing with the fans. Um, So I think it's good measurement. I think it's good training. And then we do huddles. Every game you do a huddle, and everybody finds out what we're doing well, reward recognition. Um, And it's pretty cool. The third inning of every game, we put uh, employees up on the dugout, and we talk about why they're being recognized today. And then my cell phone number goes up. I give my cell phone number up on the scoreboard in the third inning. Mm-hmm. and people can text me and it's sort of neat because after we identify the employees that are being recognized i start getting texts from fans saying well what mm-hmm. about Susie? she's really good <laughs> she's over here what about this so up um, and we win we have the highest net promoter score in all of minor league baseball because mm-hmm. we've just done done the basics and we train people and um what's really mm-hmm. neat what i've learned mark because almost so many of the managers I'm dealing with now, I mean, I have people that are running departments that are 25 years old, 24 years old, 28 years old, um, which is really wonderful because you find how motivated they are to learn. And I think that's the mistake we make. We, we, we If you want to keep your young people, you've got to invest in them. You can't wait and wait. be patient enough to wait till they're in their 30s to go to their first first meeting or their first training so i think that continuous training is just vital and you have to teach them process improvement because they they're the ones with fresh pairs of eyes and they're the ones that want to cut out waste and you can't wait um and that's why your techniques your systems like say what you've done over the years is i you know i have great respect for it and i think you have to do it and in private business you know it's not just healthcare. it's everywhere. So baseball has been a great experience for me. We do one other thing that nobody else does. It's sort of cool. We have a lot of scouts at these games and scouts have a rough life. They're in a hotel all the time. We give them a, we give them free food, which most minor league teams don't give them free food. And then we give them a $30 gift certificate to go downtown while they're in town to have breakfast or coffee or lunch on us. They get a personal note from me with my cell phone number. And scouts, will tell you in minor league baseball, the best place they want to come to is Pensacola to scout a game. So it's always looking at what can we do to make our stakeholders' lives better.
0: And, and that's part of your community, community development commitment beyond the team, the work you're doing in Pensacola. You're supporting that as well.
1: We're a big one, Javad. John. We have 300 to 350 seasonal employees. We have about 22 full-time going back to my background in special education, we are one big job development center. You're probably, your ticket's probably going to be taken with somebody with, I call them special talents. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll probably take your ticket and you know, if they have special talents, because not only do they take your ticket, but they tell you, they love you, Mm -hmm. maybe hug you on the way into a game. You're going to see probably three to four people right off the bat that are in wheelchairs helping you. So we really take seriously job development because we feel that we're a job development training center for the community.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I, I hope to come see a game, uh, at some point. Um, Please. I, I love going to minor league baseball games and my travels and, um, uh, would, would really, uh, look forward to doing that at some point. And, um, Quint, I want to thank you so much. I I, I feel bad. I mean, I think you know it was, it was on me for not inviting you to do a podcast uh, a long time ago. I know you're busy, and I'm glad that we've been able. Hey,
1: to- Rearview mirror. I- That's one, <laughs> well- one thing. No, one thing I've learned from people. This was another leadership tip. I was talking to a very successful military person here in Pensacola, and one thing they told me: it's really important if you move forward to put things in your rear room mirror. So um hey, I'm just glad we <laughs> yeah, could talk now and thank thank you yeah. on behalf of someone who loves healthcare. Thank you for the tremendous impact you've had and the fact that you keep driving. And I'm shocked we've never been on the same plane because um <laughs> oh, I, I'm on I'm videotaping Delta now because Delta's gotten so much better. Their captain comes out and talks to you. they um, it's interesting. We just had the VP of Southwest Airlines, Julie Weber, in town talking about they have 21 touch points, Southwest Airlines do, when they hire a new employee. So you can sort of see the airlines that are moving in the right direction. And you can also see the ones moving in the wrong direction. I know <laughs> I, you and I are on planes um, a lot.
0: Well, yeah, I, you, you're flying Delta. I'm flying American. And I, I don't know if uh, American Airlines. And I, I guess I didn't say. In, in, from my perception is American Airlines does not have. The Southwest, no, no, culture. I, you can I, see it I, when the employees noticed, are so. frustrated and they're being put in a bad position. Uh, oh, we, just that, bad we just had that. I, we just had
1: that. we just had an employee from um, Wisconsin was staying at a hotel because we have stores in Wisconsin, and um, he, he got all gung ho about complimenting people. So he got on an elevator recently, saw an American Airlines pilot, and went to compliment him. And the guy said, listen, we have a lot of problems. Don't fly, American. And this is a guy on the elevator. So, yeah. no, I'm with you. You can tell those that do it and those that don't. Yeah.
0: Well, um, thanks again, Quint. Um, I hope listeners will check out um, you know, all, all, of, all of Quint's books, including the most recent book, uh, The Busy Leader's Handbook how to lead people in places that thrive. I hope you're not too busy to pick it up. And, uh, but again, like Quint said, it's designed where uh, if you're looking for inspiration or some tips, you can jump in to a part of the book and and find a, a small batch of, of insight and and help. So again, our, our guest has been uh, Quint Studer. Quint, thank you so much for doing this. Maybe we can, uh, we can do this again sometime.
1: Oh, I love it. Thank you so
0: much. Thank you. Mark. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been the lean blog podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.